So as I was uh, studying for this sermon, I, I thought about uh, how we need to be accurate what we, with what we say and do, and we need to th- uh, think about how we put things together. And, and do we rest upon our own ability to, to do what we think the Lord wants us to do? And I got to thinking, if you would imagine, if someone asked you what your favorite classical piece of music is, and you said, well, you know, I thought about that, and I, I believe it's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and I, I truly believe that that's one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. And then that person says, you know what, it'd be really neat if you would rent out an auditorium and we can advertise it, and then you could go in there and hum or whistle Beethoven's Fifth. And you would probably look at this person and say, you know what? You're out of your mind. You can't possibly expect people to come to hear a shallow rendition of the Fifth Symphony of either humming or whistling it. They would absolutely think that was out of, that you were out of your mind to even think you could do that. But you see, that's similar to what it is in this church age. When we think that we, we can accomplish anything without the full power of the Holy Spirit, that's actually even a shallower effort in futility than whistling or humming Beethoven's Fifth. In order for us to accomplish anything powerful and eternal for God as an individual or as a church, we need to experience the full presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I like what uh, Bible scholar John Stott said. He said, without the Holy Spirit, Christian uh, discipleship is impossible. Now, Jesus told his own apostles, don't even go trying to witness and take my message uh, to the world until you have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we are as we come to Acts chapter 2. We come to the moment when they get that power. And here is the beginning of the church age. At that moment, the church is born. And this is the moment when the Holy Spirit is authorized by Jesus Christ himself to come to this world and begin this new age known as the church age. And so this text is very important to the history of the church, including our church. In fact, Ivor Power, uh, Powell said this. He said, this is the greatest event that ever took place in the history of the church. What we see in our text is this. At the beginning of the church age, it was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled the apostles to communicate God's word with languages and words that people could understand. The ability these first apostles had, these first disciples had, to communicate God's word was not in their own ability. It was a supernatural ability produced by God's Holy Spirit. 
the ability to communicate God's gospel to others so that they could understand it and then respond to it is not our ability. It is the ability of the Holy Spirit. And if ever there is a text that drives this point home, it's this one. When the Holy Spirit is truly at work in a person's life, there will be a supernatural power to communicate God's word. D.L. Moody once uh, was told by an aged saint, he said, young man, honor the Holy Spirit. And that's what God wants for all of us to do. Honor the Holy Spirit in our lives. The more we are yielding to God's Spirit, the more God will use us. You know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that things are not as they should be in humanity. And so when you read the Bible, you discover that things were not good for Israel either. Israel historically was a mess. It had been sent into exile during the reign of the Babylonians. And yet, the Babylonians had come and gone. The Persians had come and gone. The Greeks had come and gone. The Romans had come and gone. And still they are in exile. And Jesus finds them in exile exile when he arrives. And they're still in exile in chapter 2. The day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes. And the problem with Israel, of course, is is merely symptomatic of the problem of humanity at large. They are, they are especially privileged and blessed nation, but the reality is that humanity at large has a problem. And that all started with Adam and Eve. First, it started with spiritual death. Adam and Eve are out of sorts with God And that results in ultimate physical death and separation. Not simply of soul from God, but actually soul and body from God forever. Then there is a period in which there are hints and hopes of restoration. First, a spiritual restoration. A reconciliation between God and man. In the Old Testament, there are hints in the book of Ezekiel that God would come and resolve the issues, that he would cleanse away the sin and make it possible for people to have a relationship with him. And not just a spiritual reconciliation, but a restoration of everything. A restoration of all things, a cosmic universal restoration in which this fallen world in its entirety will be be is resolved and renewed and transformed. And the key to all of this focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, by his life, then by his death, as he deals with the issues that are outstanding between humans and God. The issue of the fact that we don't live perfect lives And that when we come to that point, we must confess that we have broken the law of God. And so what we really need is a cleansing and a pardon that is proclaimed by Christ himself because we are lawbreakers. But Jesus did this through his life and death and resurrection. He did what I couldn't do. 
but he does it on behalf of his people. That's because he alone is our representative. And in his death, he died the death that I should have died. Not simply physical death, but the death and the wrath of God. The death of judgment, the death of hell. And so he addresses the spiritual problem and he addresses the physical problem by rising from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is the great hope and humanity of the resurrection of our, of our bodies and a renovation and renewal and restoration of all things. Everything will be resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we must bear in mind when we come and look at the story of Pentecost, Luke says that there is a very clear uh, it's very clear from the beginning that he's talking about Jesus. The story is not only what Jesus has done, but it's also what Jesus is doing by the Holy Spirit in this world. And so the book of Acts is a book of Jesus. It's a book about Jesus. Luke tells us that in chapter 1 and verse 1. So from the first chapter of of uh, Acts, we have this hint of that preparation. We're all getting ready for the day of Pentecost. And so as we get into chapter 2, we see how this plays out. So if you'd please turn in your Bible to our text this morning. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Starting with verse, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this text has been just absolutely abused over the ages. We hear all these people reading in all kinds of stuff. But I think careful exegesis of this shows us what this means. I hope we understand here that the Spirit of God came upon the Christian community in order to unite them in a fellowship which could not be paralleled by any other group. Jesus had said that the Spirit would come to glorify Him and would con convict the world concerning the sin. All of these important functions are the functions of the Holy Spirit. And to me, it's become significant that Pentecost had become the day to remember the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit came to change the human heart, to cause God's people to obey God's law, and then to create in them a life that would otherwise be beyond their own powers. But there can be no doubt 
from a candid examination of the New Testament accounts that the prime purpose of coming, the coming of the, the Spirit of God upon the disciples was to equip them to fulfill God's mission. The business of the true church of Jesus Christ needs to be the business of heaven. Why is it so crucial for us to understand this and lay hold of this? It's so important because Satan will do everything he can to distract the church from doing the business of heaven. Satan has no problem with the church of Jesus Christ doing apparently good things. He has no problem with the church of Christ getting involved in politics or social justice or psychology or any other thing that they do in order to make the world a better place. I think it's interesting that there are basically two points of view of if Satan was given free reign of the world. One says that there would be uh, uh, just drunkenness and, and sin and that everyone would be swearing up a storm, that people would be in adulterous and, uh, uh, relationships and, and fornication would be all over. The other point of view, which I believe is happening right now, is that if Satan were in absolute control, there would be no drunkenness, there would be no uh, fornication or adultery, that there would be, people would watch their mouths, they would do all these things. They did that in the Victorian era. They did that in the uh, back in the Roman times as well, where they had the presence of holiness but denied the power. They acted in such a way. It was a cleansing of the outside of the bowl. I think that's what church, what's happening in churches right now is that Satan is going, you know what? Go to church. God likes that. Do this and feed the poor. God likes that. Should we pay, feed the poor? Absolutely, as Christians, we should do that. But if that is without sharing the gospel, do you know what we're doing? We're sending to people to hell on a full stomach. We need to do the things that God wants us to do. And so Satan has no problem with that. In fact, he delights if he can subvert the church by those kind of means. The church is engaged in so many, many good things, but they're not engaged in the commandments of God. The business of the true church of Jesus Christ is not politics. It's not wrong to be in politics. It's not civil government. It's not the business uh, of the government the business of the true church of Jesus Christ is the business of heaven. The redemption and the preparation of the people for this world to come. The proclamation of the gospel to the nations. The edification of those who believe. Jesus taught his disciples many times about the true nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he did this through the teaching of parables. And one of the parables... Uh, the king, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven in Luke chapter 19, verse 13. 
the master of the kingdom says to his servants, do my business till I come. Now, that do business in the Greek is the Greek word pragmatuomai. That's where we get the English word pragmatism. The wrong kind of pragmatism is a great problem for the church today. The kind of pragmatism that finds the church, uh, we find in the church today is based on the false notion that the end justifies the means. You know, if we had a rebellious child, we could beat that rebellious child until he no longer rebels. And we would say, case closed. It's done. What I did must have been right because I had the right uh, uh, end to it. But that's not true. The means are important to the end. A pragmatic worldview in the church is the false notion that we can decide what the business of the church is and ignore what God says the business of the church should be. The master who received the kingdom in the parallels, uh, parable said to his servants, do business. Do my business until I come again. Folks, doing the business of God within the church is found in heavenly power, not earthly power. But today, so much of the church effectively rejects the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So many churches today seek power. They seek to have tons of programs, impressive buildings, power, powerful services that focus on entertainment, power in their organizational and management structures. Actually, many of the leading seminaries in our day spend far more time training pastors how to be effective managers and how to be effective CEOs of the church and how to be effective businessmen according to the world's terms. Far more time is spent on that than teaching them to preach the Word of God. There was a preacher of the last generation. His name was J. Sidlow Baxter. He said this, and I quote, The life and death issue is the Bible. More than ever these days, we evangelical ministers and leaders and Christian educators need to be men who really believe the Bible and know the Bible and preach the Bible, and love the Bible, and live the Bible, and if need be, are ready to die for the Bible. Our Protestant churches are needing a new generation of Bible prophets, and he's not talking about someone who speaks apart from the Word of God. When we read the Word of God, we are prophesying because we are telling what God says, and this is a closed book. But he says, the new generation of Bible prophets, not just pulpiteers, 
far too many ministers are so busy with secondary matters that they have no, uh, they have not time to become Bible masters and teachers, which they ought to be. When the minister's study becomes merely an office, the prophet has degenerated into a manager and the pulpit becomes impertinence. The crying need for ministers, not just managers, for men with a passion to put the Bible back where it ought to be in the Christian faith, in the Protestant pulpit, and in the life of people, end quote. So hopefully, with that mind, that focus in mind, let's look again at verse 1 of our text. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, first of all, we need to understand that Pentecost is a Greek name for a Jewish festival of weeks celebrated 50 days after Passover. It was originally an agricultural feast celebrated after the completion of the grain harvest. Since Pentecost predates uh, Acts 2, we can better understand Acts 2 by looking further back. Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after first fruits, 50 days from the crossing of the Red Sea, and now 50 days after Christ was resurrected with the Holy Spirit uh, when the Holy Spirit was actually poured out. And so Pentecost is also known as, as weeks or savat. Pentecost foreshadows the uniting of Jewish and Gentile believers in one body through the Holy Spirit, the coming of the age of the Spirit, the harvest time of the Great Commission. And there are striking parallels that are given uh, of the law on Mount Sinai and the Holy Spirit being poured out at, at Pentecost. The giving of the law was where God distinguished between two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. On Pentecost, God broke down the wall of, sen, uh, of separation on this Pentecost, the law of separation through Christ. The noise and the tongues of flame would be viewed as parallel to the mighty noise and fire at Mount Sinai 1,500 years earlier. On this Pentecost, 3,000 people came to spiritual life. When the law was given, 3,000 people died. And that's in Exodus 32, 28. The old covenant was initiated at Passover, but formalized at Pentecost when the law was given. The new covenant was initiated at, at Passover, Good Friday, and formalized at Pentecost. Jesus ascends, then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit descends. They did not pray to receive the promise, uh, or did not pray to receive the promise. They prayed that uh, as they waited on the promise. They waited on the promise. That wasn't all they did, though. They pick a new apostle. We saw that last, last week. And they did this before the, the Spirit descends. Remember, Judas hung himself. 
on a rope, and that rope broke, and he fell uh, off this cliff, and his entrails gushed out. And so Matthias was the correct choice. And actually, Peter says that. He refers to that um, because he refers to the 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he refers to himself. And so Paul was a special apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost in a way he had not never come before. Though the Spirit of God was always active, there was a sense in which his relationship to the believer is now different under the new covenant. He is baptized. Uh, uh, he baptizes or joins believers into one body. And we can see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We are united. Paul would actually call that the body of Christ. There are many different opinions as to what happened on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But we believe that the significance of the, the day of Pentecost is that it connects the sacrifice of Christ to all the harvest blessings in the kingdom of God. Ironically, believers are divided over the event that should re actually reunite us. When you talk to people that identify themselves as Pentecostal, they're using that that as a division. But look what it says in verse 1. They were all with one accord in one place. There again, we saw this last week, one accord, homothumadon. It's used here. And remember, the word means one mind, one accord, one passion. And so this is basically telling us that everyone was in the same place, believing the same thing, and they were united in faith. One building, one body, one mind. This was the birth of the church. The Apostle Paul says this. If you please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting with verse 19. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows in the holy temple of, in the Lord. That word, I want to stop for a second, is, I don't have this on the outline, but the word grows is the, the word oxeno and it's, it's A-U-X-A-N-O, and it means to cause to grow, to increase, to become greater. So it says, being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's pretty evident 
And so verse 2 of our text continues. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now if you think about this, they're all sitting around the disciples. Their, uh, their general demeanor is of praying and waiting and worshiping and reading the Word of God. But they don't read necessarily that they are to do anything at this moment other than assemble together in obedience to the Lord's command to wait and pray. That word suddenly in the Greek is aphno. And it conveys that this mighty wind, the sound of mighty wind came seemingly out of nowhere. There came a sound from heaven and that sound of heaven is a rushing mighty wind. Now if you think about a tornado, they always say that when a tornado is heading toward you, there's this booming through the atmosphere. There's, and, it's, and it's just an incredible sound. And this is what filled the whole house that they were sitting in. Remember it says, there came a sound from heaven. Or it was a sound like a rushing mighty wind. It doesn't say that there was a big gust of wind. This says that there was a great sound. There wasn't any wind. There was no hair blowing and papers going all over the place. But it had the sound of a violent rushing mighty wind. It just can imagine. You're sitting there in the upper room and all of a sudden this deafening sound like a tornado is just going through the whole house, but nothing around you is blowing. You might be thinking, what, what's happening? You look around and everyone else is, is shocked. It's interesting that the word for spirit, as in Holy Spirit, is actually pneuma. In the Greek, it's rukah. They both are the same word, meaning breath or wind. They are readily familiar with the fact of the analogy of wind being used in connection with the Holy Spirit in Scripture. If you would please turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Remember, this is after... Um, uh, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, or he's still talking to Nicodemus. In verse 7, John chapter 3, verse 7, look what it says there. It says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from. And where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see that? It's not that you go, oh, yeah, the wind is coming through from my left to my right. No, it's you hear the sound of wind, but you go, I can't see it. I can't feel it. That is the way it is. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We know that it is not something other than the Spirit of God. And so we're reminded that the Spirit of God 
blowing, God breathing, is like God breathing life into man upon creation. It's the Spirit of God as the, the breath slash wind of God blows over the dry bones of Israel. As a matter of fact, I invite you to turn to it, uh, or I invite you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And we'll look at verses 1 through 14. And I want you to notice how many times the spirit and breath are mentioned in this passage. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all, all around, and behold, there were many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. Huh? There was a noise and a sudden rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. And the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and ourselves, we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. 
and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Back to our text. Here are the disciples. They're hearing this sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out, cracking right through the heavens. And I think they're learning and we're learning a little bit about how the Holy Spirit moves. There are times He moves without warning. He just suddenly starts to blow. We know that when He's moving, it's not manufactured or manipulated or made on this earth. It comes from heaven. We see He moves in power and might even though we can't see Him. I think we understand that we can see the effects of it though. We can see the effects as He's moving. And so what's happening here is of very symbolic significance. The wind is commonly associated with the Holy Spirit. And so here in these, these verses and Acts, we witness the ultimate fulfillment of the feast. It's not that the top of the hourglass is empty, and the, but now the bottom is full. The disciples celebrate the end of Pentecost but the beginning of its reality when the harvest of the nations come to the Lord. And this time for the kingdom is to go out and the harvest to come and nations to come. Luke describes Pentecost's significance in actually three ways. The sign of the new creation, we see that in verse 2. The sign of the new temple, we see that in verses 3 and 4. And then the sign of new humanity in verses 4 through 14. So I hope, again, you're able to capture the setting of this day in an insignificant room, insignificant people, 120 of them, men and women, and something was about to happen that would change the course of human history. Luke describes something like a sound of a mighty wind going through the whole house, not because there was some mere Mediterranean early morning breeze. This was a sign that Pentecost was now a new creation. In that room, King Jesus took a lifeless piece of clay, a bunch of dry bones, recreated them to be a new beginning, new creation, and bring hope of that new creation to all the world. There's a second sign that shows us that on Pentecost, a new temple is being built. In verse 3, it says, Then there, there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each of them. In the Bible, fire is a symbol of both cleansing and of judgment. All of those present that Pentecost day certainly knew the story of the burning bush at Exodus 3. The place where Moses stood on holy ground because the Lord was there. That's signified by the burning bush. The cleansing aspect is seen 
that God is utterly holy and pure, which the image of fire brings out in this, this story so clearly. And the judgment aspect of the fire is saying that Moses is forced to the ground in acknowledgement of his unholiness in light of God's holiness. They knew the story of God's presence with his people in the wilderness. And it was signified by a pillar of fire each night. It comforted Israel with protection, but warned the Egyptians of judgment if they traversed its boundaries. But most importantly, for our text in Acts, is an account of the building of the tabernacle and the subsequent subsequent filling with the cloud of God's glory, which is one of the Old Testament images of the, of the Spirit. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38, narrates for us that when the tabernacle was finished, the Spirit descended and consumed the offerings and uh, filled the Holy of Holies, and all who brought offerings to the tabernacle were cleansed as surely as the offering was judged in the fire on their behalf. Later, when people failed and failed and failed, the temple and its priesthood were defiled. The Lord had to speak of a coming day when he would suddenly come to his temple and purify the priests, the priests of Levi as a refiner's fire. Left to themselves, You see, these people had no moral strength to do anything about their hard hearts. Not a thing. Only God can do something about the human heart. Only God can change the human heart to hear and do what the Lord instructs us. And for that, a great miracle has to happen. And so, if you would please turn to the book of Malachi It's the last book in the Old Testament, just before Matthew. Malachi chapter 3. Here, if we we look at Malachi chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, 
against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Folks, the next thing and event in biblical history is the second coming of Christ. It's not looking at some geopolitical event that's going to happen in Israel. We need to understand that on that day when Christ comes, you will either be found in him or you will be found apart from him. At Pentecost, that tabernacle slash temple came with its reality of the fire of God's cleansing and consecrating that rested upon the disciples. And therefore, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy, Holy of Holies. I hope you see in that in Acts chapter 2. It describes what the church is. It doesn't describe what we're striving after as, as in speaking in tongues. And then again in verse 3, it says these tongues would be divided tongues. The, the word divided is the, the Greek word diamarizo, and it means to cleave or having opposing parts. The word tongues there is actually the, the Greek word uh, glossa, and it means more than a part of the body used for speech. It also means speech itself or even in dialect. The Bible commentator John Gill says this, I quote, this is an emblem, emblem of the various tongues and languages in which they were to preach the gospel. These appearances like flames of fire parted, and these parted flames looked like tongues. So the Jews called them a tongue of fire. Gill continues by saying, this phrase is expressive of the awful judgment which would be inflicted by Christ on the Jewish nation when he by his Holy Spirit should reprove them for the sin of rejecting him. So these tongues of fire are a symbol of the refiner's fire as we see in, in Isaiah 6 and as we go through our study on the holiness of God. We remember that Isaiah had a coal taken from the altar and put to his lips to purify his lips. And it says, Behold, uh, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sins purged. But being divided is also a sign of stiff-necked Jews who rejected Jesus as the Christ. It's of judgment the word of God was to be spoken by ones other than Jews. And now since the covenant with Abraham, the word of God has always come through Israel. Now it's going to come through Gentiles as well. Again, John Gill 
says, the Holy Spirit and his gifts and graces is compared to fire because of its purity, light, and heat, as well as consuming nature. The Spirit sanctifies and makes men pure and holy, purges from the dross of, of sin, error, and superstition, and enlightens the mind of men and gives them knowledge of divine and spiritual things and fills them with zeal and fervor for the glory of God and Christ and the good of his church and interest and for the doctrines and ordinances of the gospel as well as fortifies them against the enemy who consume, uh, whom he consumes, according to Zechariah 2.5, a passage of Scripture the Jews make use of in uncommon sense. They say that Jerusalem was destroyed by fire, but fire was to build it again. And so it is said, for I said the Lord, uh, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire around her. The pouring forth of the Spirit upon the apostles in this form of cloven or divided tongues as a fire was indeed the means of rebuilding Jerusalem in a spiritual sense or the founding of the gospel church uh, state in the world, end quote. You see, when the children of Israel are being led through the desert, do you remember? They were led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and that led them to, uh, on a journey to the promised land. And when, whenever they stopped, it stopped. Uh, or whenever, yeah, it stopped, they stopped. And whenever it moved, they moved. The mighty pillar of fire in the cloud was a pillar of God's holiness of uh, of the holiness of God. And when they consecrated the tabernacle and later when they con consecrated the temple, what happened? The mighty pillar of fire descended and rested on the Holy of Holies. It's an indication of the presence of God, the presence of the holiness of God. And so here we have in this upper room, God pours his spirit out on these people and each believer is marked by a, mil, a miniature pillar of fire. Each believer is, in, an, in a sense, become the repository of the pillar of the glory of God that had rested on the tabernacle and the, and the temple. And so the Spirit rests on each one of these believers. Paul tells us why. Each believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each believer is... Uh, Peter can write to Christians and say, look, when you are persecuted and you are despised by people, remember this. Remember the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. That's an amazing thing to say to people, especially ordinary people like you and I. The spirit of the glory and of God rests upon us. This pillar of fire represents the purifying spirit of God. And so in verse 4 of our text, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with, uh, with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now that uh, the verb were all filled, 
is the, the Greek word pletho, and, it, and it's passive. That indicates that people had nothing to do with this action. They were just recipients of it. And I love what uh, uh, R. Kent Hughes says. He says, quote, God will not fill our sails with the wind of the Holy Spirit unless we admit that our sails are empty. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit meant that the Holy Spirit has a very unusual and extraordinary control of believers. In other words, they come under control of the Holy Spirit. And there's a very unusual focus in Acts chapter 2 on the fact that it happened to all of them. The Greek word for all is hapas, and it means all together, men and women. They all together. Verse 1 says they were all together. Verse 4 says they were all filled. They were all speaking the, verse, uh, the, um, the truth of God in verse 7. They were all witnesses in verse 32. And they all had all things in common in verse 44. So if you notice that all spoke, how? In a different, actual, understandable foreign language. And that's clearly understood by those, uh, uh, the verses following this in verses 6, 8, and 11. The word other tongues refers to a language that was different than their normal native language. The language was not some unknown gibberish. They were existing languages not previously known by any of these people. Now, if you carefully look at the context here, we'll discover that the word tongue is used to refer an, to an actual language. And I think we'll see that uh, next, next Lord's Day, God willing. But in verses 6 and 8, we see the word uh, translated language. That's the same word. Um, it's the the uh, Greek word dialectos. And it, it's a word where we get our English word dialect. Uh, it, it's actually much narrower than just language. This word actually means that they were speaking not only in a particular language, but actually um, they actually had a particular dialect from a different country or district. Um, just as a side note, the Spanish in Peru is different from the Spanish in Spain or the Spanish in Mexico. Uh, just like it is here in the United States. We speak English. Well, we speak di different from people down south or the people out west or the people out east. You know, uh, they have clam chowder. But um, was, when it comes to the Holy Spirit can't, coming upon these apostles and, and these disciples, they were given the supernatural ability by God to uh, uh, communicate the message of God in a precise, normal, actual language of the hearer. And so when the apostle who was speaking had not previously known that, he was actually able to speak in the same dialect that these people came from. It takes years to even understand that, much less know. I mean, if you learn Spanish, 
it's going to take years for you to learn Spanish, and then it's going to take you a long time to understand the different dialects that are around. This is a gift, and that's what it did. This was a human language, and that word tongue and language, they're interchangeable. It's two Greek words. Uh, uh, glossa is where we get the word glossary from. It comes from uh, the Greek word glossarion, and it means obsolete or foreign word. Then you have uh, dialectos, that's where we get dialect from. And so what God was initially teaching these apostles was your job will be to take my message to the whole world and my spirit will give you the power to do that. The tongues were representing God's people, God's nation. They were representatives of God. And so that the barriers between Jews and Gentile would be broken down. If you please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Book of Revelation. And just remember, Revelation doesn't have an S. It's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. Chapter 7, starting with verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, they were all brought together. This is not about making a demarcation between people speaking in other tongues. This is not about the Greeks in the, you know, that, oh, they were supposed to be split. This is all talking about unity, about the church of Jesus Christ coming together. The work of tongues is foundational in the development of the church and this is a sign of the church coming together tongues were a sign a visible manifestation that the spirit had been given to all salvation was for all nations tribes and tongues so peter in acts 2:17 and 18 shows us that not only all people groups were potentially included, but all genders and age and social groups as well. The point has, has been made. We are all one body in Christ. The rest of the New Testament writing assumes and asserts that. This unity is not something to achieve. It is something to be recognized Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says that. 1 Corinthians 6 through 17 tells us that we are with Jesus and one with each other. Many people have claimed an experience where they felt the, that God uh, felt loved by God 
in some sort of sense and they felt the, the, the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit, that's great. They might have, as a result, as a result, served God and man in their gifted way, their giftedness in a way that they previously have not done. However, we don't sit there and look at just this, uh, you know, well, I, I just felt like I, 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 I felt the Holy Spirit upon me. This is going, you know what? We don't sit there and have unenergized Christians waiting for this baptism because we have all been baptized with God's energy at conversion. This isn't about each person having to initiate some new power. This is the fact that all believers have been initiated into the same power. And so if you read verse 4 again, and it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word utterance is the, the word apothegnomai. And it means to speak out, speak forth, to pronounce. This is not a word of everyday speech. This is a word that belongs to dignified and elevated discourse. In other words, this, this spoke, uh, was spoken with a specific purpose of glorifying God through the proclamation of his gospel. These people did not use this language every time they spoke. They would speak normally in their own language. This utterance of tongues serves as a sign to the Jews and Gentiles that salvation was available for them all. So they resolve in their hearts to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. If you just please turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here the author of Hebrews writes this. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just, just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, how? Both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You know what? We need to understand that these are often called sign gifts. So here's the bottom line. We believe at this point in time, there was a, a little bit of a gap between conversion and the filling with the Holy Spirit. That was, that was for that day. Today, the Spirit of Christ fills believers with the present, His presence at the moment of conversion. And that remains with us for life. 
at the moment of conversion, everyone is given the Holy Spirit. The new convert may not understand what all is involved. They may not understand all the power that the Spirit has given them. But they will develop this understanding through the teaching of the Word of God and through their own uh, relationship to the Holy Spirit. You are always sealed with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will always dwell in you. Sometimes there's, there's struggles that we have because we don't feel as filled one time more than another because there's a struggle between the, the flesh and the spirit. That's battle that we're in. And that's why the Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, if you please turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. So we, we struggle. So here's what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. John MacArthur says this, it says, do not be drunk with wine in which is excess, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. MacArthur says this is the believer's gas. This is the fuel. This is what makes it go. And it wouldn't do any good to have everything else right if you didn't put fuel in. I want us to understand that the Greek word for be filled is pleuroo, and uh, it it means clearly. Um, th this this uh, the word quite clearly reveals the correct me meaning. The literal trans uh, translation of this verb would actually be be being filled. Be being filled. Be being? That sounds weird. That's because it's what's called a present imperative. It is a command. Be filled. Be filled. Be filled. Be filled. It's an ongoing present command. The idea is constantly being filled, moment by moment, to the leading of the Holy Spirit to, to walk by the Spirit, to always be seeking to, to do things according to the Spirit. So here's the bottom line. 
Acts 2 is not talking about your personal Pentecost. It's talking about Jesus Christ and his, his universal project of establishing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It starts 50 days after the Lord's death and it continues with us here. I pray that we would live our lives as a new creation, testifying of the power of God to save and sanctify wretched sinners. I pray that we would always be being filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would offer sacrifices of praise as being the new temple. And I pray that we would be moved as a new humanity to be more fervent in love for one another and take that message of hope to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that we would be those who stand in awe and wonder of your word. That we would stand in awe and wonder of your ways. And we ask that you would pour a fresh, a fresh filling of your spirit. That we might have renewed boldness. That we would go with the witness that you've called us to be. Give us one heart, one mind, one purpose, all to glorify you in all we say and do and think. Allow us to come together as your body in one accord with one purpose, to glorify you and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of this, of this world. We pray this in the name of your most glorious and precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.